Behold, I'm coming soon. My reward with me, and I have to everyone according to what he's done. And the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Bless those who wash their robes that they may have the right to the tree of life. Go through the gates into the city. Outside the dogs, those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the most the idolaters, and everyone who loves kisses for. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let him who hears say, come. Whoever is thirsty, let him come. And whoever wishes, let him take the fruit of the water of life. I want everyone who hears the words of prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes the words away from this book of prophecy, God will take away from him his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book. He who dies to these things says, yes. I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. And the grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Reading this evening is from 1 Corinthians, verses 21 to 24. I, Paul, write the screen in my own hand. If anyone does not love the Lord, curse be on him. Come, O Lord, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love to all of you in Christ Jesus. Amen. So we get to the end of Corinthians. At the start of the letter, Paul identifies himself as the author and says greetings from Paul and Brother Sosthenes. And clearly Paul is the one doing the dictating and Sosthenes is the one writing down Paul's words. Until we get to this point at the very end of where Paul takes the stylus to write on the parchment itself. And he says, this greeting is in my own hand, Paul. And it was his custom to finish off all his letters with some words that he wrote himself. But this is no mere countersign of the letter so that he's at the bottom. He wants them to know that the letter is Paul. So in each case, he concludes with words specifically chosen for the occasion. There is usually a standard formula... May the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. And then here in this letter, more personally, says, My all of you in Christ Jesus. All of you. Even those who don't see eye to eye with me. Even those who've opposed me. To a divided and a fragmented church fellowship, Paul sends his love to all of them in Christ. And that would all be very cosy and very chummy, and very friendly and warm-hearted. If in between his signature and the closing benedictions, Paul hadn't written some words come across as quite jarring, even threatening in some way. If anyone doesn't love the Lord, a curse on him. Come, O Lord. And it's quite stark, really, those words in the concluding postscript of the letter. There has been a move that this was, was kind of a signal for people to, to know that they'd reached the end of the letter, time to put the letter down now, and to move into celebrating the Lord's Supper. Uh, before the bit that Hazel read to us, he, he says, greet each other with a holy kiss. It was the custom to share a holy kiss, where they shared 
bread and wine together. And one of the early Christian liturgies um, says, you know, uh, if you're holy, come. If you're not, repent. In other words, if, if, if you're one of the, the holy ones, you can share in the bread and wine. If you're not, your life out. And uh, wondering whether perhaps that is, is what Paul is saying. He talks about celebrating the Lord's Supper, remembering the death of the Lord Jesus until he comes. So maybe kind of all of this is wrapped up in the liturgy of celebrating the Lord's Supper together. But Paul's language is actually a lot stronger than anything you find in connection uh, with the Eucharist. You're cursed if you don't love the Lord. And the come is not an invitation uh, to the, for people to come and share in the meal. And it's not even really an invitation for the Lord to come and be present as people share the bread and wine. It's, it's a summoning for Christ to come back at the end of time as we know it uh, to bring in God's kingdom in its fullness. In ancient rhetorical practice, you tend to conclude an address with what was called the peroration. It was a kind of summarising of your message. You might appeal to the emotions of your hearers. You might actually spell out what it is you expect them to do in response to what you said. It is the final knockout punch. Someone described it as wrapping the speech up in a memorable package and putting a big ribbon on the ultimate finishing touch just to say, this is what it's all about. Don't miss the point. And Paul's words would have come with a bit of a jolt to his listeners. Just when you think it's all over, he's sending his greetings, he's saying grace be with you, he's signing off, we know the end is coming. Out of the blue come these explosive words, damnation to any Lord. Come, Lord Jesus. So there's one point Paul wanted to leave his hearers with, is this, bottom line, the thing that matters is loving the Lord. If you love the Lord, fantastic. If you don't, he couldn't put it much stronger than saying, the curse is on you. I'm reminded of uh, C.S. Lewis's uh, book, The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, where for the first time in the book, they don't even know who Aslan is at this stage, but the children hear the news that Aslan is coming from Mr. Beaver. What he says, now a very curious thing happened. None of the children knew who Aslan was any more than you do, but the moment the beaver had spoken, everyone felt quite different. Perhaps it sometimes happened to you in a dream that someone says something which you don't understand, but in the dream it feels as if it had some enormous meaning, either a terrifying one which turns the whole dream into a nightmare, or else a lovely meaning too lovely to put into words, which makes the dream so beautiful that you remember it all your life and are always wishing you could get into that dream again. It that now. At the name of Aslan, each one of the children felt something jump in its inside. Edmund felt a sensation of mysterious horror. Peter suddenly felt brave and adventurous. Susan felt some delicious smell or some delightful strip music had just floated by her. Lucy got the feeling you have when you wake up in the morning and realise the beginning of the holidays or the beginning of the summer. Edmund has that feeling of horror because he's been in touch with the White Witch and already he's kind of chosen sides against Aslan in his own mind. The news that Aslan is coming, oh no, last thing on earth he wants to hear, even if he doesn't understand it. But those who even don't really know who Aslan is, but the news uses a response, 
of expectation, of anticipation, of, of joy, of pleasure. And what Paul sets down here at the very end of the letter is, is kind of a litmus test almost for Christian commitment. Jesus is coming. How do you feel about it? If you love him, then you will come into the category of those who say, Come, Lord Jesus. We are longing for his appearing. That ain't just, come, Lord Jesus, should be on your lips and in your heart. But if not, then something is seriously wrong. Because when he returns, he returns as judge of all. And those who do not welcome him will not be welcomed by him. It is as simple and as straightforward as that. And Paul rams the point home with his uncompromising malediction. If you don't love the Lord, then a curse be on you. Now that is that in some ways quite profoundly challenging and disturbing. How much am I longing for Jesus to come back? Ken Terry was here this morning. The Lord might come back, he said, desperate for it to happen. If I'm completely honest, in my case, I'm probably less eager for Jesus to come back now than I was when I was a young Christian as a teenager, if I'm honest. There's a fascinating survey done of Christian United States asking them when they thought Jesus would return and whether he'd be back before the 20. 27% thought he would definitely be back by then. 20% thought it likely. 28% thought it unlikely. 10% said there was no chance. And 15% were undecided. I look back... And I have to admit that 30 years ago, I was far more expectant about Jesus' imminent return than I am now. That's partly because I'm a new Christian, it's all new and fresh and exciting, I guess. Partly, I think, as well, I suspect, well, it's been in the middle of life. Well, I'm just about still in the middle years of life. We have the most to lose. As a teenager, you're not deeply embedded in your style. You haven't got a great deal of commitments or responsibilities or investments. The prospect of Jesus returning can appear quite exciting. At the other end of the age spectrum, when life has become a bit more burdensome and toilsome, and perhaps you've been around so long you need to despair at the state of the world, it's natural to pray, come Lord Jesus and sort this mess out. Less for you to cling on to perhaps. 50. I find I'm starting to think about all the things I would like to do while I still am fit and able and before old age sets in. And when you've invested perhaps time and money and energy and effort in getting where you are, and if, if you've got to a place where you're really comfortable, you might just want to leave Jesus' return on the burner a little bit more. I'm not saying I don't love Jesus. Of course I do. And I'm not saying I don't think his return would be fantastic of course it will be. And the more we focus in prayer upon the world and we see the state it's in and, and we, we've got no chance of sorting it out really, the more we're to pray, come Lord Jesus. But at the age of 50, is it my absolute number one priority? And admitting a shortcoming to you as the congregation, I have to confess most of the time it is really. I am pretty much persuaded that I may well live to a ripe old age before Christ comes back. The odds are certainly in favour of that because he hasn't come back in 2,000 years. 
but the expectation isn't quite as high as it was. And that's not, that's not a good thing, because we are called to be in a constant state of readiness and preparedness. But I, I share that perspective because I think that the middle years of life, when we become, as Americans express said to be established, successful and business-minded, those middle years are the years where the pull away from faith actually can be quite strong. Because there's so much else going on. So many other things to take our time and attention. So many other things we are investing in. So many other things that are important to us. And the thought of Jesus coming and sweeping all that away, well, we have mixed feelings. Because we know we have so much to gain. And yet a bird in hand is always worth two in the bush, isn't it? We, we know we have so much to lose as well. And I've got less to lose than most. Because I'm a minister. So the stuff I get wrapped up in all the time, actually, is church. So I'm going to immerse myself in anything. I'm kind of going to become involved in stuff. It's all stuff that's going to keep me close to Christ on a fairly daily basis. So I am pretty safe, relatively speaking, actually, because you are my distractions. But if you're not working for Christ, then there are the demands of a job and a mortgage and a family and the next step up the ladder and finding time for your hobbies and your social life and so many things. It's easy for these things to squeeze Christ out and for faith to burn low and love to be looted. And I've lost count over the years of ministry of the people who drift away from faith in what could and should be the most productive years of their lives in Christ's service. Simply because so much other stuff crowds in. And love of Christ and a longing for his return isn't the number one priority. Slips to number two or three and gradually out of the top ten and becomes, you know, oh yeah, I remember that at some point. So many people say, I used to go. I used to church, but I don't anymore. It's easy to become like Demas, the man mentioned in Paul's second letter to Timothy, who abandoned Paul because, Paul says, he was in love with this present world. And you can't be in love with this present world and praying, come, Lord Jesus. Kind of it both ways. So the challenge of Paul's words at the end is, is to make us stop and think, oh my word. What is my first love? What is my priority? Is it Christ or is it this present world? Is my hope and my prayer, come Lord Jesus? Or really would we rather just stayed away for a bit longer living our lives? We need to be careful. We can say it was easy for Paul. He could be sold out on the prospect of Jesus coming back because he had so little to lose. And that's right, of course, he didn't have much to lose. But how come we got so much to lose if our faith is important to us? We need to be aware of ever letting things slide to the point where we turn back from following Jesus because we have too much to lose. Because too many other things have become more important. We need to hear Paul's stark challenge. Because in some ways, the city of Corinth wasn't so much different from our own culture and society. It was a place where it be made, though you can't make your fortune quite so easily these days in Britain. 
Climbing the social ladder was a real possibility. It was a city of opportunity. There were some people who were just kind of keeping a hand in at church while they were looking to make the most of their main chance in the city when it came their way. And that kind of coloured their whole behaviour in church. Paul accused them of being arrogant, putting pride in their own intellectual and wisdom before the loving of services. There were people using church as a means of improving their own social standing and were looking consciously or not for things they could turn to their own advantage. They were there in church, but were they really loving Christ and longing for his return? Some of them perhaps have got their priorities mixed up a bit. And for even those of us who are immersed in the life and work of Brighton Road Baptist Church or another church if you're a visitor, we need to remember that from beginning to end it is first and foremost and only all about Jesus. If we forget that, we think that being a Christian is about acting, thinking and like Christ, as the Pope put it so well the other week. Because if we lose sight of Christ, then church does begin to become a real burden. Without Christ, church is a lot of hassle. Time-consuming, energy-draining, burden-bearing difficulty. And that makes it all worthwhile. Because Christ is the core of it all and the reason for it all and the source of our ability to do it all. We lose Christ, we quickly turn off church. The point of Brighton Road Baptist Church, the reason why we gather here once or twice on a Sunday, isn't so that I can indulge myself by preaching a sermon to a crowd of people. It is so that we can all help each other live better lives for Jesus. That's the bottom line. That's the goal and purpose of what we're about. And if he's out of the frame, then something is seriously wrong, both with the church and with our lives. It is about Jesus or it is about nothing. has to be about Jesus, loving him, living for him, serving him and anticipating his coming again. Remember what he said about people knocking the door of heaven saying, Lord, we prophesy in your name. We can't demons in your name. He says, actually, I never knew you. Because they hadn't done what he They hadn't lived their lives for him. So this is really important stuff. It is as important as it is challenging and disturbing. And we may really wish that Paul stopped dictating and not written the words himself at the end of the letter. We may wish that he'd express our vehemently. We may even think that calling out a curse on those who don't love the Lord makes his protestations of love for everyone in Corinth sound hollow. And we may have serious problems with the whole idea of God cursing people who don't love Jesus. And yes, there are so many questions and issues and difficulties and problems with what Paul has said. But the bottom line is simple, straightforward and unequivocal. Don't let your questions divert you from the point Paul is making. Do you love the Lord? That's what it's about. Do you love the Lord? If you don't, then you're in trouble. If you did, it would be your prayer. Come, Lord Jesus.
It's one of the earliest Christian prayers we know. Paul writes it in Aramaic, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. Should be part of our prayer life. Should be part of our expectation. Should be something we don't let slip away. Because the knowledge that Christ is coming back will make us sit light to all those things that can divert us from putting him at the centre of our lives. When he comes, he will be Lord of all and all in all. Our challenge is to enthrone him and put him first in our lives now. To love him and live our lives for him, knowing that he died for us, rose again to be with him, and even to bring his kingdom and eternal life. Come, Lord Jesus.